Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology, and everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. Hi, I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test, and I'm joined by the host of the Dutch Podcast, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton. Coming up on this week's episode, we are celebrating 10 years of Dutch live from A4M in Las Vegas. We have some very special guests, some fun conversations planned, and we're wrapping up the 10 days of Dutch with a grand prize giveaway, a trip for two to the beautiful Willamette Valley for a wine tasting and tour of the Precision Analytical Lab. And now onto the toe, onto the show, the toe. The toe. That's the first mess up in like three episodes. I'm proud of myself. That's okay. It's yeah. been a long Here day. Here we go. It has been. I'm drinking <laughs> my, my sparkling water. We're good. All right. It's time. We've been building up to this moment for the past 30 days. We've had over 6,000 providers and patients register for a chance to win two round trip tickets to McMinnville, Oregon, home of the Dutch Test, a two-night stay at the award-winning Atticus Hotel in downtown McMinnville, a day of wine tasting in the beautiful Willamette Valley, and a dinner for two at the luxurious Joel Palmer House. Plus, you'll get two free Dutch Plus test kits and a tour of the Precision Analytical Lab. You have two chances to win, one right here, right now, live from the A4M booth. And we'll be doing an Instagram Live in a few minutes to announce the second winner to our Instagram family. Make sure you follow us and tag us on social media so that you can stay up to date for all the fun promos that we have, all the Dutch news, webinar signups, and much, much more. All right, Mark, you've got a little box below you there. We've already oh. gone through and we have the random generator. All right, everybody, give us that drum roll, please. All right. For the Here Dutch. We Here we go. It's the grand prize trip for two to the beautiful Willamette Valley. And the winner is? Oh, I've actually seen him around and we've been having some fantastic hormone conversations. Mr. Tyler Farm. <laughs> oh, there it is trip for two. Way to go, Tyler. We look forward to seeing you at the beautiful at the lab. Yeah. I hope you like Pinot Noirs. Yeah. We have it's a lot so of those. Beautiful awesome. there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot beautiful. of those there. So there it is. Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, uh, Dr. Jeff Bland. Uh, he's kind of known worldwide, but I'll go ahead and give him a little bit of an introduction if you don't mind. Dr. Jeff Bland is known worldwide as the godfather of functional medicine movement. Functional medicine represents his vision for a care model that is grounded in systems biology and informed by research that he, is un that he has a unique ability to synthesize. His pioneering work has created the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, PLMI, as well as the Institute for Functional Medicine, a global leader in functional medicine education. Since 1991, hundreds of thousands of healthcare practitioners have participated in PLMI and F IFM programs. And this collective knowledge has positively impacted the lives of patients all over the world. Thank you for joining, Dr. Bland. Glad well, to have thank you. Thank you, Noah. Wow, what a treat. Thank you, Mark. Yes. Thank you, Jackie. What a treat. First, so, time, first time ever in 40 years on the floor of a trade show that I've done a podcast. So this is a whole new genre. Yeah. Well, and let's just establish right off the bat so we all know, are you least uncomfortable being called the father of functional medicine or the godfather of functional medicine that implies maybe a few people uh, lost their knee joints along the way uh, for your ascension. Well, let's put it this way. My uh, grandkids are calling me the grandfather of functional oh, medicine. Oh, all right. Just to make you feel old, I'm sure. Now, that's exactly. a big compliment. That's yeah. a big compliment. And truly, like, generations of us have learned from you. And, mm. you know, it's amazing to think about the impact that you've had. 
reflecting over the last, you know, several decades in our industry. And things have definitely changed. Huge. I can tell you that when we started out in the, uh, for me, my first seminar for health practitioners was 1976. So starting off in 76, we could have met in a phone booth and we'd still have room. <laughs> so it's, it definitely has changed. In 1976, people got that close. They did meet in phone booths. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's, a, what's a phone booth? I'm sorry. Well, and I know along the way, so many categories of functional medicine have been developed uh, and evolved. Of course, we sit in the space of functional endocrinology. Um, you know, my story in functional endocrinology really started around the year 2000, where a lot had already evolved. Um, maybe you could just give us a brief overview of the changes that you've seen going from, you know, the conventionally minded folks way back when and how functional medicine has sort of taken off from there in that endocrinology space. Um, what changes you've seen and where you kind of see that going and maybe even the role you see a company like us, um, you know, filling as that continues to evolve. Yeah, so thanks, Mark. Um, as a laboratorian where I started, uh, I recognize that we had a very interesting transition occur probably about 35 years ago with the starting of the development of testing procedures that were antibody-based versus wet chemistry-based right. analytic procedures. And when, when I ran the uh, Bellevue Redmond Medical Lab for Dr. Lee Bowles in Seattle back in the 70s, uh, those technologies, uh, immunodiagnostic technologies, were not available. So we utilized wet chemistry, which has much different level of specificity, sensitivity, and precision. Right. And so basically the field of endocrinology grew up around deviations from normal that were very significant, so you could pick them up. They were pathologic. Right. So the whole field of endocrinology was around endocrinopathy. And so you could separate, say, thyroid disease from euthyroid function. But as new test methodology became available, which allowed us to be much more sensitive to early stages of change, now suddenly the field was saying, now hold it just a minute. It's not like an on-off switch. It's not like you have perfect hormones on this side, and then you have pathology hormones over here. There's a whole graded variation between the two. What do we do with that graded gray area? And people then started saying, well, that has something to do with the function of the hormonal producing systems, the endocrine systems. And what do we know about function and not just pathology? And I think from that was born then the capability of starting to really put the bedrock of assessment tools under functional medicine, because if you were only relying upon endocrinopathy, in other words, functional pathology of, of the um, endocrine system, you would never have the birthing of a systems biology approach to understanding chronic illness in the functional dysfunctional state. So I think uh, for me, as I started to watch the literature, and this is, was the kind of um, discussion I can recall so clearly having with my colleagues back in 1989 when we met, thanks to my wife putting these uh, formational meetings together in Victoria, uh, British Columbia that became ultimately the functional medicine initiation in which it was said to me, well, Jeff, the term function at that time, now I'm talking about 1889, in medicine really referred to either geriatric medicine or psychosomatic medicine. Oh, they were really pejorative terms. 
But I had been reading the literature saying, but now we're starting to see terms used for functional endocrinology, functional cardiology, functional radiology. So maybe this whole concept of function will change with the advent of these new abilities to assess function. So maybe we should skate to where the puck is going and call it functional medicine. So that then gave rise, in my mind, to us really being a champion for functional endocrinology. Yeah, I want to bring it back to something that you mentioned, which is that, you know, in the scale of patients, you have optimal health. Probably no, like very few people are in that state now. And then you have that spectrum of gray before you hit disease. And I think one of the reasons why functional medicine has been so impactful and so widely adopted and like really, especially on the consumer side, is that so many people live in a state of dysfunction and suffering, dysfunction paired with suffering. And they're dismissed by the conventional medical model because they don't fit the picture, diagnostic picture of disease. And so, you know, one thing that I think is so unique is the way that you've helped us as practitioners serve that population of people with that unique need and, and really put some science behind it that there is value in being proactive to pull people back closer to health and also just to really put um, acknowledgement to the people suffering that are in that state of dysfunction. So Jacqueline, I think you, you said something really profound and important there. So for me over the last 40 plus years, I've had a, a running debate of, with different people who are philosophically have a different outlook. So what I think of, as you're talking about, are walking wounded patients, people who are not feeling well, having a whole series of different chronic symptoms for which they'd like to know how to get them remediated. Mm -hmm. I call them walking wounded. My colleagues who are adversarial to this model say, no, they're walking well. They just are well, but they have psychosomatic problems. It's all in their mind. Mm -hmm. and, and so we are giving credence to something that doesn't exist because it's just overutilizing medicine. Mm -hmm. I think we've proven over the last 20 years that's totally wrong, that model, that these are walking well. You would not have 30% of our population with metabolic resistance to insulin and with metabolic syndrome and prediabetes dyslipidemias, dementias, all these various pre-autoimmune disease. And I was very interested to see that just for the first time ever that I could recall writing, reading JAMA every week for decades, there was an article on pre-autoimmune disease. They actually acknowledged that we can be a pre-state of autoimmunity. We can be a pre-state of virtually any later stage disease. And as we start to measure it and we metricize it, which is what precision so brilliantly does in the endocrine system, now we make it much harder to argue against mm -hmm. that these things really do match up as real. Well, it aligns with common sense too, right? You don't move from health and health and health and health and then all of a sudden you're a diabetic. You know, there's a pathway that you walk to get there. So it's nice to see common sense acknowledged. Well, well just a second though. I, I, again, I, just for the sake of being uh, conversational, what you said is certainly common sense, but I recall so clearly in 1979, I was invited to speak at a meeting on diabetes 
And what then was big deal called hypoglycemia at the University of Washington School of Medicine sponsored program. The head of that was the person who wrote the endocrinology textbook of which I studied. He was a diabetologist, a world renowned. I was a young guy, young whippersnapper. He was to speak before I was speaking. We had a very big audience of medical school people. And he said, so there is this move out there by some people that there is some graded effect between those that have diabetes and, and those that do not. And let me put it to rest that that does not exist. There is no intermediary. You either have diabetes or you do not. Now, I had put my whole lecture together about the gradient effect of glucose intolerance. But being undaunted at that my young, naive age, I just went up there and went for it. And uh, I don't think I won any friends with him, <laughs> but I did get a very strong applause because there were a lot of believers in hypoglycemia in the audience. Yeah. So, Well, that's a really interesting thing. And actually, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that you have forged ahead against a lot of barriers and obstacles. And I think that's really relatable to us, you know, younger in our careers, constantly facing challenges, facing people who are skeptical of what we're trying to teach and what we're trying to do. Can you talk a little bit about some of those big barriers that you faced in your career and maybe provide some advice for those of us who still struggle with that? You know, how do we talk to a medical doctor who's really close-minded to the ideas we're trying to bring forward? I say medical doctor, but really anyone. You know, I can't think of people who are more experienced than you at that and who've moved through that so gracefully. Well, I think that there are three kinds of barriers would be my belief. There is the barrier of philosophical barrier that is I've never heard of that before it doesn't match my philosophy and therefore I'm not going to accept it okay. second barrier is well I accept what you're saying is reasonable but there's no proof so lack of proof and then the third barrier is okay I believe what you're saying there seems to be proof but who's going to pay for it so then we get the economic barrier so I believe that there are ways of um, responding to each of those barriers. And that is, it has to be personal-centered. You have to ask the person, what is their objective on their trajectory and path towards health or wellness? If they're happy where they are with their insurance-based disease care, it's pretty hard to talk them into right. something else. Right. So you need to enlist them into being their own recruit, I think, to say, what are the things and I, I learned this actually from one of my great colleagues and blood brothers, Dr. Scott Rigdon, who I went to his practice. Um, he had a, a family practice in Illinois before he moved to Arizona. And he uh, was in doing patient uh, rounds with him. And he had this tool, uh, which was this uh, magic wand. So when the patients would come in, he would give this magic wand to the patient. He'd say, I'm, I'm putting you in charge of magic wand. What are the three wishes around your health? If you could wave this wand, it could be resolved. Now, many times those people would come in with a whole laundry list of different complaints, but they would have to prioritize the three most important. And then he would ask the question, and why do you think those have not been resolved to date? Because you are being seen by doctors, you're getting routine, and then they would give their impression. Now they would lead the conversation, right? And then he would say, well, here's what we can do. We're not going to replace, but we're going to augment by giving you the wand, here's how we're going to approach those things that are most concerning. So I think it's contextual, it's recruiting the person into their own healing mechanism, and then the last one is, of course, the financial barrier. 
So somehow you need to get the person to recognize that money is the return of capital on the energy of function. So if they want to pursue health in a way that doesn't fall into the disease care model and they value that, then they need to provide some of their potential energy, which is in the form of cash, into their operational energy, which is in terms of their health. And the value equation is going to be their outcome. If they don't get the outcome, like maybe other things they've done in their life, the money didn't return. But more than likely, they'll get an ROI as to how they value the investment. That's great. Such great advice. Are we, um, do we have some questions? That we, we do. Yeah, so this Dr. question comes from the audience, so we're gonna go ahead and ask that one. What long-term issues have you seen in patients after a COVID infection? And is there any long-term impact on hormones? Are you seeing any patterns in patients post-COVID infection? Well, I think we're starting to disassemble the data, aren't we, as to what, um, first of all, the COVID, SARS-CoV-2 infection left us with. We're also starting to get data on what vaccinations of, for the SARS-CoV-2, uh, what effect it had on certain people, knowing that we're a very heterogeneous population. And then lastly, we're starting to learn, like we learned through chronic fatigue syndrome, through desert storm, through EBV, through fibromyalgia, that the traditional methods of treatment really don't work to remediate some of the latencies of the bad memories from infection. So what do we do? And then how does it manifest into our, into our phenotype, how we look at and feel? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we know is it affects our cortisol awakening response. So it has an effect on our adrenal glands. Right. It has effects on our thymus. It has effects on our uh, differentiation of our T and B cells. It ha affects our uh, innate immunity. So there are many points of opportunity for us to working from a functional integrative approach to build those people back if we get the right information about what we need to do for them. Uh, another question that came in was, have you seen any long-term impact in cycling females post-COVID vaccination? Uh, like menstrual cycling? Yes. Oh yeah, I think that there is a, and Mark, you can probably speak to this as well. There, there's a lot of uh, information now that is starting to arise about some of the endocrine, female-specific related issues that occur post-COVID with, with the long-haul COVID uh, individuals. Now, whether these resolve in a timely fashion, I think we're still learning some. Some women, it seems to resolve in a, in a few cycles. Other women seem to have this residual. Now, we still only have a year or so history so we're not sure how long this will stay. But if, if chronic fatigue syndrome is any kind of model, these, these may be long-term because we've seen PMS and menstrual irregularities associated with CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome as well, which is a similar adver ad adverse influence on mitochondrial in, uh, effects on immune cells, I think, and bioenergetic deficiencies. Well, it's one of those questions, too, where you have to be careful in the way that you answer it in that, like for the vaccine, for example, uh, there's a study published where they showed a very slight difference in the women who had a COVID vaccine after the vaccine and women who did not. And so you look at that and you think, I could dismiss that as saying that's, that's a really trivial difference. But then if you think about how that data is generated, 
you're looking at lots of women and lots, and these are individual women. So if you have a population of people where the majority of them have no change, and then you have, for whatever reason, that would probably be interesting to explore, you have a significant change in a particular individual. For that individual, it's life-changing, but then as you lump together all of these people into statistical analysis, you're only seeing a really, really subtle change post, you know, COVID yeah. or COVID vaccine for, for that. But that's a whole you know, thing you're doing with personal lifestyle, you know, maintenance is it's personal and it's individual. And in, in some of those questions on, on the whole, the population only has a slight shift and that's, but the providers that you counsel, they get those oddballs, you know, the, the yeah. seven out of a hundred or whatever <laughs> that have their life profoundly changed from whatever it might be, whether it's COVID or we can pop else. that study, the link to that study in the show notes. I remember yeah. we talked about that like through email with the research team uh, when there was a study that came out maybe two months ago about COVID vaccination and menstrual cycle changes. And on average, it was insignificant. It was like, I think it was 1.2 days. Right. I don't know how I remember that number, but... But when then I said, well, what's the standard deviation on that? And it was like up to nine days. And the nine day patients are the ones who are calling right. us that our community is seeing. And we're saying we're waving the flag saying like there's massive concern. Women are having much longer cycles. But you're right. When you pull that in with all the people who aren't calling us because they've experienced no change, you know, but it, we're, it's important for us to be able to help those women who are experiencing, you know, a greater impact. Well, I think, Jacqueline, you're raising another really interesting point, and that is um, the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute is kind of informally connected to the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle, uh, Lee Hood's group there. And they just published this earlier this year, a, a really remarkable study was in the journal cell of post-COVID patients doing an immunological workup that was as complete as you possibly could make it. And um, what they discovered is there were different immunotypes, it appears, going into SARS-CoV-2. And different immunotypes had different outcomes based upon the exposure to the infective agent and to vaccination. And those individuals that started off with a very, uh, what am I going to call it, low resilience, innate immune system centered around their gut immune system are people that seem to have the more residual effects post-COVID and had the more systemic effects across multiple organ systems like uh, blood clotting issues and, and like endocrine hormone related issues. So some of this is on the front end of what we're learning about individuals that were already probably very low resilience. And this was a stress test that they didn't pass the test, basically. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, just so the people listening at home know, we are in a very big room with lots of music playing in the background. Yes, we know. You don't need to leave me a comment saying the audio was bad. Thank you very much. Uh, but those here at A4M know there's a party happening two weeks <laughs> down, and we don't know what's going on. So we just apologize for that now. We do have some other questions for you. Hey, given, Noah, that we're at A4M, I want to interject with the question I hear most here. Yeah. Which is, because I'd love to hear just Dr. Bland's take on this. Um, every, I mean, we do a lot with hormones, right? So a lot with HRT. And I know if you look in the literature and you give someone a testosterone injection, the saliva goes up, the urine goes up, the serum goes up in concert. Like they agree with each other pretty well. Um, and then you switch to the one that's most controversial around here, which is hormone creams and gels. And we know for those, 
the serum and the urine, if we're talking about estrogen or testosterone, they go up, but they lag behind saliva, which has this sort of exponential increase. And you get a lot of debate around here about whether those exaggerated numbers in saliva actually reflect what's going on systemically and should be used as we monitor therapy. Um, that's a question that I get a ton here, and I've dug into that a lot um, over the years, so people probably get tired of hearing me talk about that. But I was just curious, being in this industry since before anyone even tried putting a hormone cream or gel on somebody and seeing that whole learning experience go on where we went, oh my goodness, there's a really different response here in these different laboratory tests, which is a really unique, interesting paradox. Um, I was just curious what you have made of that over the years. Well, first, Mark, I, I really want to acknowledge and, and uh, shout out um, and give you some cred for what you're doing with uh, Precision and Dutch. I think you always, to me, exemplified the kind of interrogative that's required to give good answers to these important questions. You can't just pull them out of the air. You can't just use kind of qualitative observational studies. You've got to have really the appropriate types of design that allow you to interrogate those relationships. Because what we're really talking about is very detailed pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics across multiple tissue types. Right. And you know what comes across the skin is very different than what comes into the liver and what goes into various tissues. They all have their own partition coefficients. They have their own transport mechanisms. And so if you look at, like a good example that people aren't familiar with, we have the most common drug that's used for treatment of type 2 diabetes, which is metformin. Right. If you orally administer metformin, which is the standard of practice, it has a certain pharmacokinetic absorption curve, depending on the formulation, and you can predict what the blood levels will be and what effects it will have in general on people. Right. If you take that same molecule and you inject it into their blood, it has no effect. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. You know, only on an orally administered metformin. And the reason for that, it appears, is it because it's modified by the gut microbiome. And the secondary substances, the postbiotics that come in from metformin are having an influence. So what are you really measuring if you were to just measure the blood level right. in terms of its efficacy? So I think that these are really important questions that are deep science. And I think you at Precision has spent the time, energy, and money to start to tease that apart. And I applaud you for that because it's the only way this field can stand up and be reproducible and scale itself. So my thought is just because something goes up really high and fast tells you virtually nothing unless you know what it is in the tissue of interest and how it correlates with the clinical outcome. Because going up really high might be bad. It might be not good. Right. Well, that's part of the frustration, I think, in being a researcher in this field is, I know for me, as I've in interrogated that question in the literature, I'm looking at papers where they're asking different questions and then looking at their data to answer my question. And I'm curious if, if you found that to be a lot of what you've done and maybe could speak to the value of peer-reviewed published literature that actually comes out of functional medicine from our own efforts to directly answer some of these questions. And if that's been your experience, that they get indirectly answered from you know, more traditional research as people are digging into some questions and, and you're making observations that maybe even the researchers themselves aren't making from their own data. 
So I wish you and I right now were, were, were talking to our 60,000 members of our PLMI community. Hopefully we will yeah. if this gets transmitted to them. Absolutely. Because that question is, the, is a gold question for the whole field. Everybody in this amphitheater, every doctor who goes a course here needs to address that question. Because the only way that we can go from an anecdotal observational field yeah. to a replicable, authentic field is by taking that next step of understanding the strengths, the puts and the takes, the limitations, and how to recognize outliers so that we'll treat people individually in the right way. And you can't do that just strictly by intuition. Intuition is really important. It's a valuable tool. Most fields start by observation, mm -hmm. but then they have to evolve into this replicable body of literature that then allows you to understand where the guideposts are. So that is our responsibility, all of us in this field, is to take this next step into having here are the boundaries of what we say. Here are the reasons that we say it. Here are the tests that you can use to define why we're saying what we're saying. And here's how you manage those people that are outliers. Yeah, well said. Totally. Now, one of the things, I mean, I feel like you're the father of functional medicine, but also the father of omics. <laughs> There's a lot of omics out there now. And one of the things that we were talking about on a podcast that we recorded earlier was metabolomics, which is, of course, near and dear to our heart. And I'd love to understand your perspective on the impact of looking at metabolites when it comes to understanding a patient's health and what's happening with them. Because for us, that's so important when it comes to hormones, because it's not just about the active hormone. You can get a broader picture. Can you tell us a little bit about how that shifted over time with metabolomics in the industry in general and from a hormone perspective? Well, I think we started in the field of metabolomics with biomarkers, right? And single analytes, and then connecting single analytes to single conditions. So that became kind of a diagnostic roadmap, right. and ended up in the general smack testing that people go through that we're looking for outliers in certain specific organs or organ systems. Then people start saying, well, it goes beyond the small panel of analytes that we've been measuring to how they interrelate to one another because there are literally thousands of chemicals floating around in our blood that are there for a purpose, either bringing stuff in or taking stuff out of cells that relate to their function. So now we get into this pattern recognition field of metabolomics in which you start asking, how do I analyze hundreds or thousands of different chemicals simultaneously to develop a pattern? Now I think the good part of that is that gives us a huge amount of information that we can deal with. The bad thing is, it gives us a huge amount of information <laughs> that is variable because if I ran out here and had a, a large pizza and three beers, it would so change my metabolomics that anything I had analyzed when I'm sitting here now would be like, is this the same person? It would look totally different. So they have to be under controlled conditions to allow serial analysis it's going to be reproducible enough that we can make sense of it mm -hmm. so i think the field of metabolomics as much as i've been a proponent of it and I, when i was at the pauling institute in the 80s that that was why that was my research project was to use mass spectrometry and high pressure liquid chromatography to try to develop metabolomic patterns but i recognize in which we had hundreds of people under controlled diets how stress factors and uh, exposure to 
toxic chemicals and very variables could influence their metabolomics. So I think we we use it as guideposts, but be very cautious not to use it as a like a diagnostic tool. Well, I think one of the things that that at our present time we have to also be mindful of is be selective in that we're not leveraging things that don't have that aren't undergirded by the evidence. Uh, so that we're actually honing in on the things that have, you know, credibility that's been established as opposed to leaning too heavily on things that may have a theoretical connection, but that haven't actually been established as we look at these, you know, first things that come to mind for me with that sort of statement is just organic acids or something like that, where we have all these markers with potential significance and then some with, you know, significance that's been established in the research. And, and that's part of our job as a lab is being selective about those things that we push forward and say, yeah, lean on this as you make clinical decisions while we gather other data to interrogate the potential usefulness of other things so that we're selective in that in that process. I, th I think that's really well said, Mark, because there are things that, that will stand up in a metabolomic profile as being like the peaks above the noise. And they're ones that are really sentinel marker compounds that we can use, like you find in an organic analysis that gives you some sense as to what's going on in the Krebs cycle of metabolically active cells. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah, well, we want to thank you so much for joining us for this question and answer time. This has Sorry. been cool. amazing. Yeah. No, thank I've you enjoyed so much. This. It's, this, been, it's been great to have you. This adds to my list of things I've never done before. Yes, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's rare. So <laughs> I appreciate that. And to all of our listeners and fans, we are so thankful for you. We would not be here without our raving fans of the Dutch test. And you've helped us profoundly change the lives of the patients using our test. If you haven't signed up to become a Dutch provider yet, it's easy. Just go to dutchtest.com, click become a provider, and our team of onboarding specialists will help you get set up. If you're a patient and you're looking for help, we'd also love to connect you with a doctor in your area. Go to our website and click find a provider. Only experienced Dutch providers will be there and we can get you their information. And with that, the 10 days of Dutch, celebrating the 10 years of Dutch are officially over. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a safe and happy new year. 2023 is gonna be an exciting year for Team Dutch as we look to bring our providers all new education resources and like awesome provider resources as well. So make sure you stay tuned. Make sure you sign up for our Dutch Digest. Follow us on social media and subscribe to the Dutch podcast with Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton. Again, to all of our listeners, thank you so much. Until next time.